Good morning, everyone. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. The English mystic writer Evelyn Underhill writes in one of her books about a saintly man named Father Wainwright. She writes this. He was an indifferent and in later years an inarticulate preacher. People came to his sermons not so much to listen as to look at his face. A compassion that was more than human seemed to reach out through his spirit from beyond the world. He seemed to have become all love. Now, <laughs> I know none of you came here today to see my face. <laughs> Uh, But that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That someone could be so filled with Christ's love that it seems to emanate from their face. That Christ could so transform a person that their face itself becomes a shining witness to the love of Christ. Even more than, even in spite of, (laughs) their fumbling words. I especially like that, that Father Wainwright wasn't a very good preacher. Uh, we've all known saints like that, I think. People who maybe weren't the most polished, the most charismatic, but whose lives shone out all the more with a radiant witness for those with eyes to see. That's how real saints are, by the way, I think. They're not the, the big overachievers, the people who are just good at everything. They're the people who radiate Jesus' love. And that's a great encouragement to us. Father Wainwright's face itself was an irrefutable witness to the love of Christ. I don't know about you, but I want to be a person like that. Our lectionary readings for this morning are full with, of shining faces. First, Moses' face after he had been speaking with God, and then Jesus' face, suddenly changed, transfigured, before the disciples' eyes. A human face now suddenly revealed to be the face of God. And then, helpfully, in our epistle reading from 2 Corinthians, Paul helps us understand both of these stories by reading the Old Testament story of Moses in the context of the New Testament the new revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's Transfiguration Sunday, and it's our task this morning to grapple with this astonishing event. I want to say at the beginning that there is something irreducibly mysterious about the Transfiguration. It is a kind of summary of all Christian doctrine, but it also stands apart from the rest of the story. It's not... Jesus' birth. It's not his baptism. It's not his death or his resurrection or his ascension. And yet there are elements of all those other events in the transfiguration. Was the transfiguration strictly necessary? Does it reveal anything unique about Christ that isn't revealed somewhere else? I'm not sure. (laughs) It almost seems gratuitous, unnecessary, 
like Jesus' glory just breaking out suddenly simply because of who he is. The transfiguration is ultimately and simply the manifestation of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, fully God and fully man, revealed in everlasting power and great glory. And that is something we can never fully comprehend, get our minds around. And yet we can contemplate this mystery, and Holy Scripture gives us many ways to think and to talk about it. Our lectionary passages for today are a good tour of Scripture's teaching about the Transfiguration, not an exhaustive tour, but they certainly give us plenty to keep us busy. So I want to start in 2 Corinthians with this contrast that Paul shows us between Moses' shining face and Jesus' shining face. The brightness of Moses' face, Paul says, was the splendor of the law, of the old covenant. And that does make literal sense of the Exodus story. Moses had just come down from the mountain, where he had been for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the law from God himself and writing it on the two stone tablets. Exodus tells us that Moses' face shone because he had been speaking with God. It's easy to read this as just a very old Bible story and not really imagine what that must have been like. To miss how astonishing that must have been. Being in God's presence, speaking with God, had actually made Moses' face shine. Reflecting back to the people the glory of God. Moses himself wasn't even aware of it until Aaron and the people were frightened of him. It was just an odd side effect of being in God's presence, almost like a physiological phenomenon. What must that have been like? What does it look like for a face to shine? I don't know exactly, but it was enough to frighten Aaron and the rest of the people. Uh, The Exodus passage says they were afraid to come near him. This was, I think, a perfectly appropriate response. It's a good example of what the Bible elsewhere calls the fear of the Lord the appropriate fear of sinful hearts in the presence of God's holiness. Remember the last time Moses had come down from that mountain, carrying the tablets of God's law, he had caught them red-handed in idolatry, worshiping the golden calf. And he had smashed the two tablets in anger and then dealt out God's swift and righteous judgment on them for their sins. So this time, when he comes down from the mountain and his face is glowing, They're understandably a little bit nervous. (laughs) So Moses is considerate. He puts a veil over his face so that they won't be frightened. Now, whenever a New Testament writer interprets an Old Testament passage for us, we should pay extra close attention because they're teaching us how to read the Old Testament as Christians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul understands this story of Moses to be a picture of how completely the New Covenant And Christ has surpassed the old covenant of Moses. Moses' face glows, yes, but it's an indirect glowing. Moses' face is only a reflection of the glory of God. Just like the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon is beautiful, yes, and it sheds enough light for us to kind of grope around in the nighttime. 
but it's nothing compared to the brilliance of the sun. And when the Gospel of Matthew tells the story of the transfiguration, Matthew tells us that Jesus' face was lit up like the sun. It shone like the sun. Moses' face reflects light from another source. Jesus' face is that source. Under the covenant of the law, the people of Israel couldn't look at God's glory. Even indirectly reflected in Moses' face, they needed a buffer, a shield. And Moses obliged them by putting on a veil. But now in Christ, Paul says, that veil is torn away. And we can behold God's glory directly. Under the old covenant, the law was carved onto tablets of stone. Under the new covenant, the Spirit himself writes his law on our hearts. Under the old covenant, all the Israelites had to wait in nervous expectation while Moses talked with God and then came back and reported to them what God had said. Under the new covenant, God has spoken directly to each of us through his son. Under the old covenant, only Moses got to see God's glory. Now, under the new covenant, all of us, with unveiled faces, behold the Lord's glory. Back in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 10, which is a little before, the, I think, where the, the lectionary picks up this morning, Paul says that what was glorious now has no glory in comparison with the surpassing glory. The law was like a candle in a dark place. Very useful thing, even an essential thing if you're trying to find your way around in the dark. But now the sun has risen. The sun of righteousness, as he's called in scripture, has risen and the candle is no longer needed. It is completely swallowed up in the brightness of the sun all around. Moving to the transfiguration story, it picks up on the same theme. When Moses himself shows up. The glorified Christ is shown not all by himself or surrounded by choirs of angels. I suppose either of those images might have worked just fine, but he's shown talking with Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah here represent the law and the prophets, respectively, both of which find their fulfillment in Christ himself. In fact, the whole meaning of the law and the prophets depends on Christ. Without Christ, they are pointless. He fulfills them. And so here they are speaking with him. But it's Christ who all the dazzling light comes from. There's no question here of who has the place of honor. And just to make it very clear, the Father himself speaks from heaven, affirming, presumably for the disciples' benefit and now for our benefit, the identity of this man. This is God's own son, his chosen one. Of the three present, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, the voice directs their attention to Jesus. Listen to him. In his glorification, Jesus' true identity is revealed. So now we come to the second point. We've seen that Moses and the prophets are eclipsed by the glory of Christ himself. But the transfiguration is showing us something else about Jesus' glory. What were Moses and Elijah talking about with Jesus? It says they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They're talking with Jesus about his coming death. 
right here amid all the glory, all the light blazing around like lightning shafts. They're talking about Jesus' crucifixion. Why? Why here in the transfiguration, in this revelation of Jesus' eternal glory, is Jesus' coming death the topic of conversation? Transfiguration demonstrates for us that Jesus' glory and Jesus' death are always linked together. They're talking about Jesus' death amid his glory because there is no glorified Christ apart from the cross. It is because he endured the cross that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' eternal glory from beyond all time, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever world without end, amen. That glory is revealed at the cross in his humiliation, disgrace, and death. God conquers through humility by giving himself for us, even unto death. That is Jesus' eternal glory. At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus has risen from the dead and he's walking along the road with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The two disciples are telling him about their bewilderment that this Jesus, who they had thought might be the Messiah, had died. What does Jesus tell them? How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. Jesus' death was actually what Moses and the prophets had been talking about all along. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, his death had always been their theme, if we have eyes to see it. So in a sense, Moses and Elijah are doing what they've always done. They're talking about Jesus' death. There's nothing more glorious to talk about. Moses and the prophets are fulfilled and eclipsed by the glory of Jesus himself. Jesus' glory is shown to be closely connected to his coming death. And uh, finally, I want to spend a few minutes with the disciples. Both Peter and John, who witnessed the transfiguration firsthand, refer to it in their own writings in the New Testament. In their more mature reflection, they understand the transfiguration to be evidence, hard evidence of Jesus' true divinity. John says in John chapter 1, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. We understand that to be a reference to the transfiguration. And Jesus, uh, Peter, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, we were not following cleverly invented myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty when we were with him on the holy mountain. Both Peter and John now understand the transfiguration to be a vital understanding, a vital part of their understanding of who Jesus actually is, and also hard evidence. We saw it with our eyes. You can take our word for it. But in the actual event itself, the disciples were a little more oblivious. In fact, they've actually fallen asleep. 
Jesus has gone up on the mountain to pray. And while he's praying, the disciples have dozed off. This seems to have been a real pattern for them. The same thing happens later in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus goes off to pray. He brings the same three disciples with him further on into the garden. He tells them, watch and pray with me. And they fall asleep. They're oblivious of what's really happening. They're, not, they're, not, they're unaware in both, in both stories. There's a kind of symmetry in these two stories. The disciples fall asleep before Jesus' great glorification in the transfiguration, and then they fall asleep again before his suffering and his death. Um, when Jesus asked them in the garden to stay awake, to watch with him and pray, and they, they can't do that. That's very, we can judge them for that. <laughs> but how many times have we done that? In many, many ways. And because they, they're falling asleep, they're, un, they're, un, they're not ready. When Jesus goes to his suffering and his death, they run off in fear. I think of a prayer we say in Compline on Wednesday nights. Guide us waking, O Lord, and guard us sleeping, that awake we may watch with Christ, and asleep we may rest in peace. Discipleship is watchfulness. Watchfulness is prayer. Nearly all, nearly all the old commentators notice that Jesus is transfigured while he is praying. That's very significant for them. The disciples fall asleep. But Jesus, praying faithfully, is revealed in glory. The implication is that prayer is the place of transformation. Those who watch with Christ through faithful prayer will also be transformed like him. And this brings us back to dear old Father Wainwright, whose holy face the people came to see. Can you think of people like that? I can. If all these promises are true, if the veil of the law has really been taken away and we can commune directly with Christ, if we can participate with him in his death and so be raised with him in his glory, our faces too can shine. Like everything else Jesus does, we are invited to participate with him in his transfiguration, too. The Anglican theologian Rowan Williams has said that the lives of the saints might be the best apologetic for Christianity, the most persuasive argument for the truth of the Christian faith. Because what else can explain a truly transformed life? What else can explain such joy in the eyes of someone who has suffered terribly for many years. What else can explain the light in Father Wainwright's face? Nothing. In our second Corinthians passage, Paul says that we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. To be in Christ's presence is to be transformed into his image so that we ourselves will shine more and more with the same glory that was revealed 
in Christ in the transfiguration. Thanks be to God. I'm going to end by praying again the collect for today because I can't think of a better summary of this text. So let's pray together. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.